morning. I'm Tim, one of the pastors here, and let me be one more voice welcoming you to North Sub. If you're a guest of ours this morning, if you're joining us online, a special welcome to you as well. If you're a member of our church, you are about to receive, if you haven't already, a mailed copy of our newly written constitution and bylaws. Uh, early reviewers of that document have said things like riveting and a real page turner. Um, they haven't, but it's a very important document for the life of our church. And we've now mailed that two months in advance of the congregational vote so that we all have ample time to read over what's there and to consider whether we'll vote yes or no on that rewrite. And I, I'd just be remiss this morning if I didn't give a big thank you to all who participated in the various stages of the process that led us to where we are today on that document from the team that spent literally hundreds of hours drafting the first draft to the focus groups that provided input, to the breakout groups at the recent congregational meeting, town hall participants a few weeks back, those who stuffed envelopes and licked stamps this week. Uh, this document's way better than it would have been otherwise because so many of you invested time and energy in providing input in it. So our hope is that it'll serve our church for 20 plus years to come. So look for that in the mail this week. Glad you're here. Good to be worshiping together. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. For all of human history, people have been trying to figure out where they can go to get access to God. Where is God? Maybe he's here, right? Muslims take pilgrimages to Mecca and pray facing Mecca in hopes that they can access God's presence there in a way that they can't access his presence elsewhere. Or maybe God's here, Jerusalem, right? For generations, Jewish folks hoped they could access God's presence in Jerusalem in a way that his presence couldn't be accessed elsewhere. Now the temple site has changed pretty dramatically, though. So is, is God still there? Did he move? But then there's simultaneously the belief across religious traditions that while humans live down here on earth, God actually lives up there in heaven. But if he's up there, then what's the significance of building cathedrals like this one? St. Peter's, that would have cost $5.4 billion in today's money if it were built today. Does God even live in earthly places like this? Where is God? I found myself revisiting this question personally these past couple weeks, not just in preparation for this sermon, but as news has come in about these outpourings, these revivals, some are calling them, right, happening around the country. Many of you have probably heard about them, first at Asbury, then at Cedarville, Samford, Belmont, etc. Have you heard about this, right? Uh, routine worship services that start, but then just don't stop for like days on end because people just don't want to leave, right? People turning from sin, people engaged in fervent prayer. I know pastors who heard the news and got in their cars to drive to Kentucky just in the desire to experience what those college kids are experiencing, right? Which, which raises the question. Has God been present these recent weeks at, for example, Asbury in a way that he's not present everywhere else? In short, 
what's the right way to think about the location of God's presence? Where is God? Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 7 if you haven't already? Acts chapter 7 is where we're going to be today. If you've got a Bible in the seat back in front of you or a Bible app if you've got that on your phone. Uh, if you're keeping score at home, yes, we touched on these verses as part of a broader passage five or six years ago in our Acts series back when we did that. I also preached a sermon five or six years ago here called Where We Worship that touched on some similar themes, but I'm coming at this text from a different angle today. This week we're particularly interested in exploring what theologians have called God's omnipresence. It just means that he's all present or everywhere. And here's why. Because if he's everywhere, what's the need to drive to Asbury to meet him? For that matter, why go to church at all on Sunday morning when God lives in our living rooms too? And to extend even further, what's, what's so bad about hell? If God is everywhere and therefore is theoretically there, see why this question matters? This is the latest installment in our series on the attributes of God. When we started at the beginning of January, I was kind of preparing myself to be all alone in my geeking out about this series, but I've been so happy that you shared in my excitement for it. I really, I really do feel like a rich man that I get to pastor a congregation who would rather explore the deep things of God than hear five biblical principles for financial prosperity or six tips for a better marriage. And there's a place for those things, right? But this is what it's all about, right? Uh, let's get to know God for who he is. That's why we're in this series today. So where we pick up the story in Acts chapter 7, here's what's going on. Jesus has recently risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. He has left his Holy Spirit to guide his followers in their leadership of the early church. One of those leaders is a Jewish believer in Jesus named Stephen, who's appointed one of the deacons in Jerusalem. And this guy's on fire. You can see it in chapter 6 if you flip back a page. Uh, but his bold proclamation of Jesus gets him in trouble with some of his fellow Jewish people. So he gets arrested here in chapter 6. The, the accusation against him the fabricated accusation, is that Stephen is speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. And particularly that he never stopped speaking against this holy place, meaning the temple and the law. If you're familiar with the New Testament, you could probably picture how such accusations might come about. Maybe this isn't exactly it, but it's not hard for me to imagine Stephen teaching things like, hey, the temple is great, but you don't have to go there and do the sacrifices anymore. The temple was always meant to be a signpost pointing forward to Christ, the true temple. And now, in a very real sense, we, his body, the church, have become a new temple in which he dwells. The once-for-all sacrifice has now been made. We can access God anywhere that two or three are gathered in his name. And it's maybe those sorts of teachings that Stephen's teaching that gets twisted into accusations like, hey, you hate Moses, right? You've blasphemed our law and our temple. All that's backdrop to help us understand that where we pick up the story a chapter after this in chapter 7, Stephen is midstream in his response to the accusations levied against him. And specifically the question, hey, Stephen, why are you trashing our temple with your words? 
Luke, who's the author here, gives us quite a substantial summary of Stephen's speech, so I commend reading this chapter, chapter 7 in full. But for our purposes of exploring God's omnipresence today, we're going to focus on verses 44 through 50, where we see Stephen retrace Israel's historical places of worship and then gives an analysis of that history. So first, the places of worship in Israel's history. This is verses 44 to 47, if you're taking a look with me. Uh, we'll read it in a moment, but remember the backdrop for this monologue, right? This is when Stephen hears that he's been accused of denigrating the temple. And the argument he makes in these four verses is something like, hey, hey, sure the temple is important and it's good, but it's not as all-important as you think it is. And here's how he gets there. In verses 44 to 45, he reminds them, Hey guys, we didn't always have a temple, right? So take a look. Our ancestors had the, temp- the tabernacle of the testimony in the wilderness. Just as he who spoke to Moses commanded him to make it according to the pattern he had seen, our ancestors in turn received it, and with Joshua brought it in when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before them until the days of David. In other words, guys, we spent 40 years in the, with just the tabernacle of testimony, the portable tent. And then, even when God had already made good on his promise to bring us into the promised land, still nobody said anything about a temple for another 300 years until the days of David. All we had was the tent still. And this wasn't because of some oversight on our part, as if God wanted a temple, but we were withholding it from him. No, no, no. We were just doing what God told us to do. That's the pattern that God showed us. So in summary... How important can the temple of God be, the physical temple, if God was fine without having one for so very long? That's Stephen's argument, right? Whatever importance it may have, it can't be absolutely necessary for God to achieve his purposes. See Stephen's argument there? But he's not done. He takes it even further in verses 46 to 47 when he reminds his listeners, hey, even when David then brought up the idea of a temple to God, God still wasn't in any hurry to get the temple built. Check it out. He found favor in God's sight and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. It was Solomon, rather, who built him a house. In other words, if the temple was really God's priority number one, would he have put it off when David brought up the idea? So Stephen, here, saying the physical temple isn't as indispensable as you think it is. Now, two caveats. One, the early Christians frequented the temple. See Acts 3 and Acts 5. The temple meant a lot to them. It was one of their main gathering places. So to Stephen and to Luke, who's recording Stephen's speech here, the temple wasn't bad, so we shouldn't read this as anti-temple by any means. The second caveat is Stephen isn't refuting the tradition of the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, regarding the temple. In fact, you could just argue that he's restating what Solomon himself said on the day the temple was dedicated. Take a look at 1 Kings chapter 8. These are words of King Solomon as he dedicates the temple. Uh, And before we read it, imagine being Solomon on that day, right? Imagine how excited you would have been. You were the one that God chose to build his house. And now it's complete and you're about to welcome God into the stunning house you've built for him according to his instructions, right? Don't you think you'd be like, man, I did it. I really did it. Yet, take a look at what he says. With all Israel looking to Solomon, what comes to Solomon's lips? This house can't contain you. Will God indeed live on earth? Even heaven, the highest heaven can't contain you. 
much less this temple at this. So when we consider Stephen's words in light of Solomon's words a thousand years earlier, it seems like Stephen just believes himself to be understanding the temple the same way Solomon himself had understood it. Stephen isn't intending to denigrate the temple, but like Solomon before him, he's relativizing the importance of the temple for God's people, right? So, so that's the history that Stephen recounts. Now on to the analysis of the history. That's what he does in verses 48 to 50, right? So if the temple isn't as important as Stephen's contemporaries think it is, why exactly not? Stephen's answer is, well, because God doesn't live in structures made by hands. See that there, verse 48. Now some commentators argue that with these words, Stephen is critiquing Solomon for building the temple. Uh, for several reasons, I think it's almost certain that that's not the case. Uh, not least of which that the tabernacle itself was made with human hands. Yet in verse 44, Stephen has just commended Moses for doing it, just as God showed him to do it. Now, Stephen isn't anti-Solomon or anti-temple. He's just saying that it's a mistake to think that God could be contained by a building. He seems again to be echoing that prayer of Solomon on dedication day when he said, God, dwell with us. And then Solomon's like, wait, actually, this temple can't possibly be your dwelling because you, 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 you fill up the heavens and you exceed the highest heavens. So answer us from where you actually dwell in heaven, even though that can't even contain you. So Stephen then, uh, here in our verses we're looking at today, goes on in verses 49 to 50 to quote from Isaiah 66 for further support for the case he's making. Take a look at that. He says, heaven is my throne, this is Isaiah, and the earth is my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what will be my resting place? Didn't my hand make all these things? Stephen believes his hearers to be making an old error of idolizing the temple. And to probe that a little deeper, several commentators have noted the real problem Stephen's calling out is that some have come to think of the temple as a way they can make God manageable. I'll say that again because it might be something that we slip into too. Some in Stephen's day have come to think of the temple as a place where they can go to make God manageable. Let me try to reconstruct the attitude maybe of Stephen's accusers in Acts 6 and 7. They're coming at it something like this. They're saying, hey, we don't have to listen to these followers of Jesus who are talking about how they've met God independent from the temple. We're the ones with the temple. And as long as we've got the temple, God will be on our side to bless us. See the problem? The temple has become for them a tool that they can use to domesticate God. As if they could get a predictable output if they put in the right input. In this way, they're like the people God had already rebuked back in Jeremiah 7. Take a peek with me. We're gonna, I'm going to read this because it's, it's so, uh, it, it, I think we could fall into the same thing. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel says, Correct your ways and your actions and I will allow you to live in this place. Do not trust deceitful words, chanting, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Instead, if you really correct your ways and your actions, if you act justly toward one another, if you no longer oppress the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, and no longer shed innocent blood in this place or follow other gods, bringing harm on yourselves, then I'll allow you to live in this place, the land I gave to your ancestors long ago and forever. 
look, you keep trusting in deceitful words that cannot help. See, people with this attitude here, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They're not coming to the place of worship with open hearts to hear what God wants for them, right? They aren't saying, God, correct me today, rebuke me, show me some aspect of your plan that I've been missing. Instead, they come to God's house with the attitude, by doing these worshipable acts at this place, God will be obligated to follow the formula and do what I want him to do for me. And Stephen maybe ironically hints, well, that's actually what it looks like to denigrate the temple. Let's pause there for a moment of reflection because I wonder if it's possible that we could ever slip into this mindset rebuked in Jeremiah 7 uh, as Stephen's accusers did. I think today, instead of the temple, the temple, the temple, the phrasing might be something like, I go to church, I go to church, I go to church, right? As if we're good with God because we attend a weekly worship service. Coming to church is not a way to domesticate God, friends. The God who transcends this building and every other building will not be managed by you and me. He won't be obligated into blessing us just because we gave up an hour or two a week for him and came to church. Like, by all means, come to church. But please don't come to check a box because you think now God will owe you. Now, even if Stephen's accusers got him wrong, and I think they did, I do think it's responsible for us to do some analysis of our own regarding Stephen's central claim. Namely, how can it be? That God is everywhere, omnipresent. For example, when God showed up in a cloud or in a pillar of fire, wasn't that where he was in those moments? Or when he says he lives in believers' hearts, doesn't that suggest that he doesn't necessarily live in the hearts of unbelievers? Don't we create some problems for ourselves when we start teaching that God is everywhere? Here's a way to synthesize maybe what scripture says about God's presence. We might say God is present in different places and times in different ways. Like he's everywhere, but he's not everywhere in the same way, in the same place, in every place and every time, right? So to use Grudem's categories, God is sometimes present to punish. Here's Amos 9. Can't really read it from there, but... Make a note of it if you want to. In these verses, God is tracking people down to harm them. He's present, but that's precisely what's terrifying to them. There's nowhere to escape his wrath. That's why it's not entirely accurate to say that hell is eternal separation from God. Psalm 139 says it, right? It, it, that even if we were to escape to Sheol, the underworld, hell, God would be there. And in Revelation 14, what does it say? People are being tormented in hell in the sight of or the presence of the Lamb. God's there in hell. If he wasn't, he, wouldn't, he would have finite dimensions. He wouldn't be omnipresent. But he's not there in hell to bless. He's there to punish. 
So sometimes he's present to punish. At other times in places, God's present to sustain. This is when he's not there to punish, he's not there to bless, he's there to uphold, to sustain, right? That's what we see in Colossians 1.17, Hebrews 1.3. He's holding all things together right now, this very moment, sustaining it all, or else it would all fall apart. But the vast majority of the times that the Bible talks about God's presence, God being somewhere is referring to the fact that he's present there to bless. To bless, right? That's Psalm 1611 that we saw earlier in the service. You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. We could list many, many verses like this from Scripture. It's, it's his presence at the tabernacle or at the temple. It's, it, you want to be in his presence if he's present to bless. And that's overwhelmingly what he is present to do in Scripture. And so... so once we understand that God is sometimes present to punish, sometimes to sustain, sometimes to bless, some of the confusion about God's omnipresence gets cleared up. Because we can affirm confidently, yes, God is everywhere. He's just not everywhere in the same way. And maybe that helps us understand a little better what's happening during those moments or seasons in which God feels far away. I want to ask you to throw a hand up if you've ever felt that way, because almost all of us probably have. But based on what we've seen this morning, is God ever truly far away from us? I don't think so. Not spatially speaking. He can't be, right, he, if he's everywhere. Right? Near and far are words that Scripture uses to talk about God. Yes, but they're there to help us understand and articulate what we're experiencing him as near or far, right? They're not words meant to describe God's essence or location. Uh, when, he d when it doesn't feel like he's here with me, it may be that he's not present to bless in the way that I'm wanting him to bless me right now. But it's not that he has moved away from me. He's here, wherever it is that I am, right? And that means that when Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay reached the top of Everest, and they were the first ones to do so, they weren't alone up there. Amen? When Jacques Picard reached the bottom of the Mariana Trench, which is actually further down than Everest is up, he wasn't alone down there either. And when we one day become so advanced in our space travel that we are able to explore Sector Q of the Orion Spur, guess who will already have been there long before we ever knew it existed? He is outside of space, distinct from this universe, yet able to fully inhabit this universe at every place. It means he's not bound to any particular place, but he's able to enter into every place fully and simultaneously. And he doesn't have to spread himself thin to do so, as if he, would, uh, as if he were finite and had to you know, diffuse himself across the universe, right? His immensity just transcends our categories of space and size. That's the God we worship. And so for today's big idea, I'm going to borrow a phrasing from John Stott and summarize what we've seen in this scripture like this. God's presence can't be localized. His presence can't be localized. He might be less frightening if we could localize him. He might be easily more, more easily manipulated. But even if we wanted to, his presence can't be localized. That's Stephen's main point. And so, no, we can't presume on him here in this building, as though 
this is some sort of magical space in which he's obligated to show up and make us feel certain tingly feelings on Sunday mornings and melt our hearts and blow our minds. Yet we can and should take to the bank that he's here. And if he's here, there's no limit to what can happen in this place. Amen? But that cuts two ways. In the end, the old preacher was right when he said, I have good news and bad news. The good news is God is here. The bad news is God is here. Depends which side of the line you're standing on. When we're on the wrong side of that line, and we all started on the wrong side of that line, by the way, God's omnipresence is terrible news. It's like the psalmist in Psalm 139 says sort of nervously, where can I go from your presence? There's nowhere I could possibly get away. And if you're a bit terrified by that this morning, you get it. Because it is terrifying. The fact that before God, everything about me is naked and exposed. I've never told, I've never told Brandon Benner that when we went up to his lake house in seventh grade, I couldn't find the bathroom door in the middle of the night. And I just peed my pants all on his floor uh, in the corner of the room. In the morning, everyone was accusing everybody else. I didn't say a word, but God knew. <laughs> I never told Amy Shike that I egged her house at age 17. I hate that I did that. I'm so sorry. She has no idea. But God saw me do it. She's the last person I would have, she would have expected. I'm the last person. I never told my African history professor that I used a cheat sheet on the first map test. I hate that I did that. Professor had no idea, but God was there. Not a single moment of my life or yours has been hidden from God. Not one. There's nothing that I could confess to him today that he wasn't there for. Before him, all of our lives are laid bare. And yes, on one hand, that's scary for someone to have so much power over us. But don't you also see what a relief it is? If he saw it all, if he was there for it all, there is exactly a 0% chance that you or I could ever disappoint him with a confession of sin. True? We're never letting him down when we admit what we've done because we're only telling him what he already knew to be true. He was there for it when we thought it, when we said it, when we did it. So yeah, there's nowhere to escape him, true, but that's why he invites us to stop trying to escape from him and rather escape to him. I'm going to say that again because y'all are looking at me. He invites us to stop trying to escape from him and try to escape to him. Flee to God, right? If there's one takeaway from us for Stephen's message that God's presence can't be localized, I think is that because we can't flee from God, let's flee to him. I don't know a better way to close the sermon than with this quote from a North African theologian named Augustine centuries ago. I'm going to read it slow because the language is a lot to digest, but uh, there's so much here. He says, when you wish to do something evil, you retire from the public into your house where no enemy may see you. Then, 
from those places of your house which are open and visible to the eyes of men, you remove yourself into your room. Even in your room, you fear some witness from another quarter, so you retire into your heart. There you meditate. But he is more inward than your heart. Wherever, therefore, you shall have fled, there he is. From yourself, where will you flee? Will you not follow yourself wherever you shall flee? But since there is one more inward even than yourself, there is no place where you may flee from God angry, but to God reconciled. Say that line again. There's no place where you may flee from God angry, but to God reconciled. There's no place at all where you may flee. Will you flee from him? Flee unto him. Let's pray. God, we want to be a people who do just that. Who don't try to flee from you. It's pointless, useless, fruitless. We want to flee to you. And be welcomed by your open arms, which are all so eager to welcome us uh, and receive us with your grace. Thank you that that's the sort of God that you are. That even in your terrifying immensity, you are for us in Christ. You uh, pursue us in your love and you are ready to forgive.